Arrakis. Dune. Wasteland of the Empire. And the most valuable planet in the universe. Because it is here, and only here, where spice is found. The spice. Without it, there is no commerce in the Empire. There is no civilization. Arrakis. Dune. Home of the spice. Greatest treasure in the universe. And he who controls it, controls our destiny. Welcome to Now Playing's Dune Retrospective Series. Do we have worm sign? Who shall we have worm sign the likes of which even God has never seen? Part of the Now Playing David Lynch Review Series. Remember, walk without rhythm and we won't attract the worm. Hosted by Stuart. My greatest student and my greatest disappointment. Jacob. I can kill with a word. And his word shall carry death eternal. And Arnie. Men admire his courage. It will take more than courage to survive what's coming. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series. And keep coming back as we continue looking at all of David Lynch's films. Try looking into that place where you dare not look. You'll find me there staring back at you. And join Stuart at BooksAndNachos.com for in-depth reviews of all of Frank Herbert's Dune novels. They know a storm is coming. Time to let them know I'm here. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. It's not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is a little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I'm permitted to pass over me and through me. Listener discretion is advised. May the hand of God be with you. May the hand of God be with us all, Duncan. Today, we're discussing Dune, starring Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, Stellan Skarsgård, Dave Bautista, Stephen McKinley Henderson, Zendaya, Chang Chen, Sharon Duncan Brewster, Charlotte Rampling, with Jason Momoa and Javier Bardem, directed by Denis Villeneuve, or as we're probably going to call him this show, Denis Villeneuve. The podcaster has not yet awakened this time. The podcaster's <laughs> still half asleep, Arnie. <laughs> it is awfully early, and it's Stuart. I, Jacob, give the gift of my body's moisture. Please accept it in the spirit in which it is given. Again? Well, we're always cleaning up after your moisture. <laughs> <laughs> Just be thankful it's moisture from my mouth. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm very grateful for that. Thank you. And thank you guys for returning to Arrakis. 18 years after that shitty sci-fi sequel, Children of Dune, we're finally getting, like, the real movie, right? Dune 3.0. At least the one with the appropriate amount of money behind it. It took 40 years, really. Nobody knows about the sci-fi thing. I talk to people about Dune, and I'm like, yeah, really, the one you should see if you want to understand the story is the sci-fi one. They're like, what sci-fi one? What are you talking about? They think there's only, and really it's the only one, that should be known is the David Lynch film that is gorgeous but unintelligible. You say that, Arnie, but I just want to remind you, maybe you did this in a 
late night drunken blur, but you did recommend the 2000 miniseries. I know. I stand by it. That's why I tell people, if you want to understand the story, go watch that one. Or you could read the novel. And I say, flee from them all. I don't get these books, worms, and ecology, and religion. Like, none of it has ever clicked with me. Mmm, yeah. So, let's just reframe, in case you haven't listened to our other shows. They're all out there. We cover David Lynch, his version, part of a retrospective of all of his work. We've covered both Sci-Fi Channel miniseries. I'm the fan. I'm the one that likes the books. I'm the one that likes David Lynch's movie. A lot, actually. I think it's a lot of fun to watch. Maybe even because of its unintelligibility. The sci-fi ones you could skip, but they're not awful. Actually, that Children of Doom was pretty awful. Yeah, but I'm coming back to this one feeling like, yes, this is exciting. I really can't wait to see Doom done on a modern budget equivalent to a Marvel movie. Look, I'm a little cynical, a little suspect. Like, people are like, look at this. It looks beautiful. It's going to be huge. I'm like, eh, it's still Dune. I don't care how good it looks. It's still going to be Dune. Like, do people really care about this besides, again, a very small subsection of science fiction people? Nerds. Use the word. It's just for nerds. Dune isn't cool. No, it is. Like, it feels like it's for nerds of the nerds. Like, you know, you can like Marvel, you can like Star Wars, but Dune, okay, you're a true nerd then. No, I'd say that it's a small group because of the generation in which we grew up and we were probably a little behind it. But I'd say Dune is like the sci-fi Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, if only the Bakshi version of Lord of the Rings existed. (laughs) Like, that is your fandom at this point. But there's so many books. I remember I had to look this up before this podcast because I had interviewed Kevin J. Anderson about his Star Wars novels, and we got talking about his Dune novels. And when he released the Dune novels that were basically he was writing them, but Frank Herbert's son was giving stories, and they would debut at 10, 15 on the New York Times bestseller lists. So this is not a niche. This is a big thing. I mean, books are a niche at this point. So, I mean, (laughs) I definitely hear what you're saying, Arnie. For a generation, I would say one step older than us, this was their book. You're right. Lord of the Rings, Tolkien kind of impact. Hippies loved Dune. It built a following after 1965 and became something everyone read in the 70s. But on film, it has always been this great mythic struggle to try and encapsulate everything that goes on in that novel. Because it's dense. I mean, the thing about Dune is the reason why it doesn't work. It's not budget. David Lynch had a big budget. It's the fact that it's about so many things at once. And it's very hard to find the commercial thread that tells you what mass audiences should care about in this story. Yeah, there's so much here. And I was thinking about that coming back to this. I almost wish that I could erase the retrospective series from my mind. Done, Artie. I don't remember those sci-fi ones. I barely remember the Lynch one, except Sting in his space underwear and that cool worm at the beginning talking to the Emperor. That's about all I remember. (laughs) But here's the thing. Because we watched this, when I'm watching this movie we're going to review today, and they're talking about the Bene Gesserit, I'm having a lot of recall. And I'm like, oh yeah, the Bene Gesserit, okay, I remember what they are. And they're talking about House Harkonnen, and I'm like, oh yeah, okay, and the Emperor's plot, I got this. And if I hadn't 
sat through two different versions of Dune and had Stewart explain it to me on books and nachos, would I know what was going on in this movie? I can't tell, honestly, if the movie we're discussing today is at all intelligible or if I only know what's going on because this is my third or fourth time through. <laughs> I might be able to provide some insight then because I watched this with my wife who doesn't know anything about Dune, except her dad loved it. You talk about that generational gap, Stuart. Yes, her dad was a huge fan of this, but she watched that Lynch one back in the 80s, remembers nothing. So watching this with her was a good window into what you're saying, Arnie. Someone that's not familiar at all, can they follow this? Because that's the point of this Dune, is to bring in people who wouldn't watch the 40-year-old almost Lynch version or barely remember it, and they're looking to make a space epic. They're looking to make a big franchise. I said today we're discussing Dune. Today we're discussing Dune Part 1 is what it said on my version. Did we know that? Because that was a huge surprise when I saw that Part 1. I'm like, oh, are they doing like chapters within the movie? Nope, this is just Part (laughs) 1. I did not know that going in, but I guess it was always in the contract. Denis Villeneuve said, I'm not going to even touch this unless you give me more than what you gave David Lynch. David Lynch had to cram that entire 500-page novel into two hours and 17 minutes, and I'm going to take more time than that just to do the first half of the book. Yeah, I read it wasn't even the first half. He hasn't even covered the majority of the book yet. Eh, I feel like it's about half and half, but it is a lot of setup. I feel like the coup is an obvious segmentation between the world as it was before and what Paul would become. But I think that they're invested in the long haul. There's a TV series coming. There's lots of books to adapt. There's lots of possibilities for where to take this universe. This is the kickoff to that. I mean, it did a similar thing, right? They kind of told something that was like, well, this could be the end of something, but we're probably going to go beyond it. Hell, we're probably going to go beyond what Stephen King wrote and make Pennywise sequels as well. It part one felt much more contained, though, than this one. I'll give it that. Fair enough. I think it's a safe bet based on my theatrical audience. I went to the IMAX Thursday night and I was like sitting there. There was nobody in there. I was a little early. I was like, "Mm -hmm, this is what I thought it would be. And then some other came over and like sat right next to me. Don't you hate that when like it feels like the theater's empty, but he like looked at his reserved seat and he sat right next to me. I'm like, you mother. I'm like, I'm just going to get up in about five minutes. That's what I do. I always wait for the movie to start. And even if the seats are reserved, yeah, just move to another empty seat. But five minutes later, there wasn't an empty seat. This thing was jam-packed with people. It was full. People were there for this. Really? I looked at going theatrically, and I would have had no trouble finding a seat in a showing unless, again, like happened with Halloween, unless they were all buying their tickets at the box office and walking right in. I did end up, I'm... I have moved, I have a new home theater, and I felt like I could have a good enough experience with my own home Atmos sound, and so I watched this on HBO Max, but the home theatrical experience. Despite my hesitancy of, like, wanting to see this, because it's Dune, like, I don't understand anything that's been going on, even though I saw all those other movies and TV series and listened to Stuart talk about the books on Books and Nachos, like, it looked impressive enough. When I saw that second trailer for this, I'm like, oh, this actually looks like it could be pretty good, at least visually. I'm like, I would love to see it on an IMAX, but not going out right now, so I guess the second best option, I popped open my HBO Max app on my iPhone SE, that's the small (laughs) one, that's the joke, and watched it. No, I watched this at home as well on my TV. I wanted it to be as big as possible. Like it looked visually impressive from that trailer. 
I did watch it a second time in that way with mom, believe it or not. I was like, you're not going to like this, but she basically was in her recliner where the big TV is and she wasn't moving. So she's like, if I don't like it, I'll just go to sleep. I'm like, okay, I'm going to test that. I'm going to (laughs) be looking over at you when we get to hour two on this movie. But yeah, I saw it on my TV and the interesting note that mom pointed out, she's like, why am I not getting the full image? Even when you watch this thing in HD, there are letterbox. This thing is so big, it's shot IMAX sized, that you really, in order to get the whole scale of it, do need to go to a theater. But it wasn't filmed in IMAX. I mean, you don't need the... It's not taller in IMAX. It's just that they're in such a wide format that it's letterboxed even on TVs, which is not uncommon. A lot of movies are letterboxed on widescreen TVs. Yeah, well, maybe it's just the production values itself, but it felt like this movie will benefit. You will appreciate it more by seeing it in an extravagant big screen way. If you're watching it on your iPhone, you're doing it wrong. I'll agree. It's a beautiful movie, but I I want to issue a Dune challenge to all of our listeners, and I'm going to ask it of Jacob and Stuart here. Okay. If you chose to watch Dune, but somebody was there with you, Did they make it through the whole film without checking their phone? Because I bet nobody coming along for the ride and watching this on HBO Max won't pull out their phone sometime in the two and a half hour runtime. Okay, I guess I'll have to do a sneak preview then, because here's the thing. I was watching this in my bedroom. I'm like, my family doesn't want to watch this boring movie about space worms. I don't even want to watch it. I'm watching it. My wife's downstairs. She's like, hey, come hang out with us. I'm like, I got to watch this two and a half hour movie that I don't even want to watch. She's like, oh, that Dune thing. Well, just come watch it down here with us. Spend some time with us. I'm like, okay, you guys are going to be bored. Like I was 40 minutes into it. I'm like, I don't even want to try to catch them up on the first 40 minutes. I'm just going to start it over. I went down there. Okay, my daughters, they're teenagers. Yes, they pulled their phone out. But my wife, she watched this glued to her seat the entire time. Like, never got up. Well, she got up to go to the bathroom one time. It's a long movie. But no, (laughs) no phone was pulled out. Okay. And Arnie, I would say that's not a Dune challenge. That's any challenge for any movie these days. I think that we're just conditioned. I don't think my mom goes five minutes without looking at her phone and she's 80 years old. (laughs) So one of them passed the Dune challenge. (laughs) Yeah, I got to take detailed notes. Yeah, I'm pulling out my phone to look up actors and yeah, all that stuff. It's not even a luxury. Like, if anything, I'm freezing the movie, I'm rewinding, I'm making sure I got everything on screen. Now, for the Thursday IMAX showing, I gave myself the permission to just go in and experience it without note-taking and to see when my mind might have wandered. There were times, for sure. There are times in this movie, I'll just go ahead and call it out. The last part of this movie struggles by not having a climax. Yeah. I'll agree. And yes, I found myself happy to be on HBO Max because a couple of times my mind wandered and then I'm like, I got to rewind this. <laughs> so I re- yeah, I, my girls are like, oh, you know, they have their biological dad. They're like, he was going to show us this when we go to his house tomorrow on HBO Max. I'm like, well, guess what? Watch it this time because you're not going to understand it. And then when you watch it the second time with them, you can still not understand it because it's Dune. <laughs> There's a lot going on. It's a dense film. Like, just watch it. Just try to take in whatever you can. And this is all your preconception. I'm very interested as we go through to find out if you felt proved wrong after your arms crossed going in. I wouldn't say crossed. It was just like, this is never going to work for a mass audience. That is my opinion. No matter how good it is, it will never work for a mass audience. That was my opinion going in. Your exact words were, you don't want to watch this. I don't want to watch this. That is the definition of arms crossed. 
Well, I'm kind of playing it up because, again, what is the mass appeal for Dune? I don't see it. It hasn't made its case to me, and I'm a sci-fi nerd. So, yeah, there's that. But, again, that second trailer for this, like, really won me over. I'm like, if nothing else, this is going to be a visual masterpiece. I mean, let's just take what Arnie said about Lord of the Rings. It's been a while since we've had one of those. And I don't mean literally. Like, I know there were some Hobbit movies a few years ago. Not talking about that. It's been a while since we've had a movie be a phenomena in that way. Like, 2001, around the same time that this Dune came to Sci-Fi Channel, the Peter Jackson movies came to movie theaters. That and Harry Potter captured a whole generation of moviegoers. We're now at the point where Gen Y needs their epic. I think this is the Dune for them. I do think that this is the movie that was made with them in mind. Can it be done? I don't know. With Timothy Chalamet as the star, I think that's a good way to go. But I've realized I've never seen Timothy Chalamet in anything, but I know his name. You never saw Lady Bird or Call Me By Your Name? Oh, you're right. I've seen Lady Bird and I've seen Little Women, both of which had him in it. I didn't know he was in that. I thought that was all women. The interesting thing about Chalamet is he hasn't had to take the road that any other young actor would have to. He doesn't have a pop career. Disney? Like Zendaya? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Zendaya is on Disney Channel. I don't even think he had a TikTok account. You know, like there's nothing on his resume that's embarrassing. I'll just go ahead and say it that way. He's done art movies. He got to where he is by doing these dramatic art pieces. And yeah, I think that the buzz around him, I think he's got more fans that are adults than young people. Like he's yet to really, I think, have a pop culture breakthrough, unless we're counting Lady Bird, with young audiences. This will be the test. Oh, and he was in Interstellar. I mean, again, yeah, he was in a lot of stuff, but like... (laughs) Impact. (laughs) I'm talking about critics. He was Oscar nominated for Call Me By Your Name for good reason, too. He was actually exceptional. I am a big fan of him. I think that he has the acting talent. He has yet to have his breakthrough. So it will be an exciting moment to see paired. When you see someone that hasn't been known to audiences, but you believe has some real talent. I'm thinking about when Mark Ruffalo got the Hulk gig. I was like, I know he's going to kill it. Like, that's how I'm feeling about Chalamet. Nobody knows what he's going to do, but when he gets into this part, Kyle MacLachlan, who? He's going to own it. That's my expectation. And this entire cast, I wanted to say, it's filled with people that have good acting reps. They didn't get the biggest names. They didn't go with the obvious commercial action blockbuster stars. They went with people that dramatically carry a lot of weight, have a lot of awards on their shelf, can really bring the fire to these parts and make them real. I'm sorry, but when I look at this cast, what I see is Poe Dameron slash Apocalypse, Thanos... Stellan Skarsgård, <laughs> Drax. Well, you do that a lot. I mean, I think it's fair to say that you always see the Marvel history in any actor that's on screen. That's your go-to. You're seeing Thanos. I'm seeing Josh Brolin and Javier Bardem. I'm like, no country for old men. Yes, let's get these two going at each other again. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. Oh, that's right. Brolin was in No Country, wasn't he? Yes. That's the <laughs> movie I think of, not Thanos. <laughs> yes, agreed. I forgot that Oscar Isaac was in a Star Wars movie. I was like, I think he did one of those. Which one was it? Oh, all of them. <laughs> he did all of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, he no register in those movies for me on him and that. Yeah, well, because he has nothing to do in those films. But in his arc movie careers, I think he's made many exceptional. The one about like he became a an oil salesman. That one was really good. A most violent year. Yeah. 
Yeah, really good actor. Yeah, Ex Machina, great dancing, make him dance more in film. <laughs> I liked him in that film. Yeah, I think that for the most part, yes, some of them have flirted with pop culture phenomenons before, but none of them are associated with Marvel and... Bautista. Bautista is associated with Marvel. <laughs> I think of him as a wrestler still. I guess you could make the Drax claim. I mean, maybe that just shows you my less than enthusiasm for Guardians that other people have. So, all right. You're telling me when you look at this cast, it feels like the cast of a Marvel movie of a Star Wars movie. I, To me, that's not how I experienced it. I expected to see a cut better. I expected to see more acting challenge and more out of this international cast. The surprise really for me is it will largely follow the beats of the David Lynch movie. They just slow it down. It will be a Paul-centric movie, which read that novel. It doesn't have to be. But Arnie, why don't you read them the plot and we'll get into Dune 2021. You're right. It does cover a lot is the same as the David Lynch one. So I basically gave a rewrite to my David Lynch plot summary, but only the first third of it. Yeah, and you got to cross out Sting. No Sting character in this one. I never brought up Sting in the first half of the first one. I don't bring up Bautista in this one. (laughs) The year is 10,191, and in the vast empire are two feuding houses. House Harkonnen, led by the floating fat lech Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, played by Stellan Skarsgård, and House Atreides, led by the kind Duke Leto Atreides, played by Oscar Isaac. The Duke is also preparing to pass leadership to his reluctant son, Paul, played by Timothy Chalamet. Paul has been having dreams and visions of a desert and a woman, played by Zendaya. Don't we all? Due to the Duke's rising power, the Baron has contrived a complicated plot to kill all of House Atreides that involves the Emperor giving rule of the desert planet Arrakis to House Atreides. Arrakis is a barren, hostile desert world, but it's also the only planet in the galaxy where you can mine spice, the most valuable substance in the galaxy as it is required for navigators to successfully route interspace travel. House Atreides takes over the planet from House Harkonnen, but it's a trap. Traitors inside Atreides succeed in killing the Duke and destroying the house, giving House Harkonnen control of Arrakis again. But Paul and his mother Jessica, played by Rebecca Ferguson, escaped out into the hostile desert. The environment alone almost kills them until they encounter the Fremen, the indigenous people of Arrakis. Among them is the girl from Paul's dream named Chani. The Fremen leader Stilgar, played by Javier Bardem, realizes Paul is gifted in the Fremen ways and was only going to allow him to join them, but when Jessica beats Stilgar in combat, both are allowed. However, Fremen member Jamis disagrees with this, leading to ritual combat between Jamis and Paul. The only way to end this combat is in death, so reluctantly, Paul kills Jamis. And then Paul and Jessica go off with the Fremen, as credits roll, and I'm left saying, that's it? Yeah, part one. It is not in the advertisements, part one. Nope. (laughs) They don't want you to know that. They didn't do that with it either. I'll just point out, chapter two came later. Like, they really just said, this is it, this is Dune, and then it's a bait and switch when we find out that, no, this is just the first installment. We're just getting our feet wet on something that's going to take three more hours. During production, this was always intended to go out as Dune Chapter 1. That's why it's in the movie. But marketing wisely realized, let's just convince people this is a whole movie. And I would say, another note to the marketers, when you got production logos, like, put all those in the front, it's really jarring. You get this black screen and this weird, like, throat-singing language, subtitles, dreams, are a message from the deep. 
I'm like, ooh, this is already really atmospheric, this first three seconds. And then we cut to a WB logo. Like, I'm like, this is not a rack. You got a water tower there. Like, what is going on? It was a little jarring. Like, just a slight note. Like, again, that first, like, three seconds had already sucked me in a little bit. It's always a question of where do we begin? Take a deep breath. Where do we start? Yeah. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. It was not what I expected. You know, we started in Lynch. It was Virginia Madsen floating in the stars. And hello, children. I am so glad there's not like 20 minutes of exposition. Yeah, the storybook fairy tale. But no, here, yeah, it's definitely more threatening, as this movie is. The real surprise is, I thought David Lynch's vision was awfully dark and creepy and not friendly for children. This one is oh so much more in that vein. Yeah, it's this initial data dump that led me to believe this would be a hard sell for common audiences. If this is the way you have to ingest this information about the two houses and about the Empire and everything. But it's like a verbal version of the Star Wars crawl. I think, and Jacob, I'll look to you, I think that you can kind of just gist what's going on after this. You don't have to catch every term and every name to follow the overall there's good people and bad people fighting thing. I feel like they do that throughout the film. They'll go, this is like whatever weird language they're saying. And then they're like, it's a death needle. Like, oh, okay. But yeah, this opening scene, it's funny you talk about that Star Wars crawl because, yeah, we're seeing a battle here with these harvesters blowing up and people popping out of the sand. Like, it's a real grabber. My wife's like, oh, so this is just like Star Wars? I'm like, "Uh, I don't think it's going to keep up this pace. (laughs) And again, if you're going for that young, young audience, start with Zendaya. Start with the known quantity to people under 25. She is the voice of the Fremen. Now, there are lots of Fremen here, and they could have gone with Javier Bardem, but he's, what, 50? Not going to go with him. They're going with this mystical figure who will hook up eventually, not really in this movie, but eventually we know because we've seen other versions. She's Paul's soulmate, if not his wife, and she's going to really get the perspective, I think, that we have of this entire movie, and that is that this is a planet where indigenous people are persecuted. It didn't come through last time, but I do think in lots of choices, we are to understand that Harkonnen and Atreides are both seen as unwelcome forces on this planet. Yeah, I think I could say, look, yes, I've watched all the other Dune movies. I listen to those books and nachos. It's not something that I retain in my memory, though. So, yeah, I'm not 100% pure. But watching this film, again, right from this beginning, I'm like, oh, okay, I understand this world a whole lot more, more than David Lynch ever helped me understand it, more than those sci-fi TV shows ever helped me understand it. Like, okay, Fremen, they're the indigenous people, and they've had these invaders for 80 years, you know, harvesting their spice, and they don't like it. And now someone else is coming, and they're going to see them as just another oppressor to them. Like, I understand this almost instantly. Agreed. I think that it's a very invigorating way of capturing audience attention. Truthfully, I think this is the best action scene in the entire two and a half hours, is this opening, and I wish we'd get back to it. I wish there would have been a little bit more of this with the Fremen, and we're not seeing something from the future and then flashing back, right? This isn't something that we're going to see in part two. This is just... uh, Sorty against House Harkonnen by the Fremen. Yeah, I take it every night when the Harkonnens go to harvest, the Fremen pop out and they're blowing up their harvesters and fighting with them like they don't like them. Because I kind of thought we'd get back to this because Zendaya was there. I thought that maybe we'd come back to this later in the movie or the second movie or something. 
Yeah, sorry kids, if you're here for Zendaya, it's really going to be a, a disappointment. She does not show up for a very long time now. <laughs> yeah, think of it as like an extended perfume commercial where she's wandering around the desert looking for her new scent spice. She basically just wears fashionable clothes and appears in visions throughout this movie. She will not be a character. And she was open with that. I saw in an interview beforehand, people were asking her about Dune. And she's like, I think I'm in it for like five minutes. If there's a sequel, I'm going to have to spend a lot more time on set. Indeed. And again, I think she will. We all kind of know what her role is and where she's going. But she is here just to set up the idea that, yeah, don't think of this planet as riches to be plundered, but a culture that has been exploited. And Paul's on board with that. This is why I feel like it's very much a Gen Y take on the character. He is having dreams of her. He is not happy that maybe he doesn't want to leave his water planet. Maybe he doesn't want to live in the desert. But I also think there's an element that he understands very early that we are exploiting people. We're taking their natural resources. We are the oppressors. Yeah, the movie makes it really clear in that regard. And again, I think that's a benefit overall to understanding a story that's been called unfilmable. (laughs) And then we jump to House Atreides. We're going to finally meet Paul. And again, a faint memory of David Lynch because he loves sound. Like there was some weapon that was sound. It's going to be made very clear here, like the voice. Like we're going to see this little scene between Paul and his mom practicing the voice. And this is going to be a big deal for like an action scene later on. But like, again, something I understood so much more from the two minutes of this film than I did from David Lynch, from TV series. Like, oh, okay, this is this weird magic power that he's practicing. And you want to talk about sound design when that voice finally kicks in and the bass just rumbles across the room and everything. So good. I really loved Blade Runner 2049 because of its look and its sound. I feel the same about Dune here. No matter what I think about the story, it is a audio-visual masterpiece. It is gorgeous looking and it is really gorgeous sounding. Yeah, it does feel like those book covers came to life. If you've only experienced Frank Herbert's work by, like, well, God help you, I don't know where you would see them anymore, but when there were bookstores or when you would go to the library, you would see all of these evocative images of worms bursting out of the sand and what have you. They have really been able, more than either other version, to bring that to life. This won't have, and maybe not all to its credit, but it won't have David Lynch's touches to it. It's Frank Herbert. So, Paul, let's talk about Paul. Like I said, he's already been studying the critical race theory that Fremen (laughs) are pretty much the good guys and I'm shit. His dad seems to understand that as well. We don't get a lot of scenes with Duke Leto, but we do see that he had his own father that was a bullfighter. And God knows they cut maybe 20 times to a severed bull head or statues of bullfighters and matadors and what have you to really sell the idea that Atreides, the family, the house itself, used to be as barbaric as Harkonnen. Okay, is that what it's getting at? Because this is the part that confused me is it's 10,191. I figured by like, I don't know, 
4,327, like humanity's realized we shouldn't do bullfighting because it's really inhumane. So I'm like, what are they getting at with this bullfighting stuff they keep cutting to? And and it's weird that it's just his grandfather did it. I guess even in the future, you could still have your weird, we'll have dog fights and cock fights and all that, perhaps. But okay, so this was to show he came from a brutal background. You'll see Leto actually at the gravesite of his father in one yeah. scene. And they have, again, when don't they have a bull charging him on the grave? Like that was his defining feature. I am the bull fighter leader and it killed him what it said is that paul wants to go to the planet early and the dad is like i don't want you being impulsive impulsive has led our family into the problems we've had it's the reason why my dad is not alive anymore i want something better for you i want something better for this planet i'm going to try and harness desert power instead of being like the harkonnens and just murdering every fremen i see Again, a real good way to sell this is we have land power, we have sea power, we need desert power. I mean, just very simple terms. Yeah, a compliment throughout this film. Like, again, there's going to be stuff that doesn't make 100% sense, but I get the vibe. I get the clashes and the rivalries. Like, everything is so much more clear in this version. I turned to Mom, who, like, watches maybe five sci-fi movies in her lifetime. She's maybe seen the first Star Wars. I'm like, are you getting this? And she would repeat back more or less the gist of things. I don't think coherence is an issue in this movie. No. If anything, I think that they sometimes hit the same beats too often. I don't know how many times I needed to have Paul dream of Zendaya walking through a desert or to see this bullfighting stuff. But if you get nothing else, you understand that Paul is reluctant. You use that in the plot summary, Arnie. I think that's a problem. I like Timothy Chalamet. I think he's giving a good performance here. But to see a hero that doesn't want to answer the call for the whole movie, it's going to contribute to this movie's energy problems. He answers the call about two-thirds of the way through this movie, I think. You'll have to point me out what you're talking about, because he does not until the last seconds of this movie, in my opinion. When his dad dies, I think he answers the call. And if you're looking at the Campbellian hero's journey, refusal of the call is a big part of it. But he wants to, from the very beginning, like you already mentioned, go to the planet because he wants to save Aquaman. You want to talk about great actors. Well, you don't get much better than Jason Momoa, do you? God bless him for being in this movie. They needed more of Jason Momoa in this movie. Jason Momoa is not a great actor, but Jason Momoa does know that you need to have a little bit of fun if you're going to set off on a two and a half hour movie. But I'll compliment him on this because, yeah, I'm like, oh, great, Aquaman. How many of those Aquaman bro moments are we going to get? My boy! He's changed He's changing <laughs> from my man to my boy! <laughs> yeah, he's a fun character to watch, but I don't feel like he's that extreme like we've seen him before in those DC movies. Oh, I got to disagree. I feel like he's almost in a different movie because everybody is speaking eloquently and emphasizing every syllable, and he's like... I'm going to be doing this. <laughs> and don't we love him for that? I mean, his name, again, is Duncan Idaho, which makes him stick out. Like, it's such a weird name, but he's a military guy, right? Like, I don't expect him to have that same sense of class as House Atreides of all these royals. There's a reason why they use him in the trailer, like slapping scrawny little Timothy Chalamet on the shoulder and saying, you put on some muscle. No, you didn't. You know, like that kind of energy this movie needs. I'm just going to put it out there. This movie will just get slower and slower the more that it moves. And that is because it's weighty. 
This director has pretensions. He's trying to do awe-inspiring all the time. Every scene is epic, epic, epic. There's no room in this movie for fun unless Jason Momoa is there. He is the only one who seems to enjoy his role. But isn't that kind of the point? Like, this is... I don't know. It's such a weird political situation. Like, uh, this planet's been harvesting this most valuable resource in the universe, and I'm going to take it away, and we're going to give it to you because I really want to start a war between you guys. And, like, it does feel very Shakespearean, so I don't mind it feeling weighty. I mean, yes, you can lean into that. This director is definitely going to lean into the political intrigue of all this. What's going on in the shadows is literally the theme of this first movie. That although power is being decreed out in the open in this ceremony, we have this guy get off this ship with the spacing guild. So upset there wasn't a giant David Lynch alien. Like, I was just hoping that was going to show up at some point. I wanted an eraser head baby, but instead yes. we get guys <laughs> with suits and you can't see their face. I think the production design is insects. All the costumes are meant to evoke, all the ships and stuff are meant to evoke grasshoppers and locusts and ants and... Yeah, dragonflies, yeah. Yeah, they all look like a, a big insect war on an anthill. It's kind of like the general theme. But my point is, we have this big ceremony where it's openly declared, Harkonnen is out, you are in... But of course, that's not really the aim here. An unseen emperor, and we don't see him in this movie. They are saving him for part two. Jose Ferrer was the actor who played him, and he, he was in one of the first scenes of the Lynch movie. But here, they're going to keep him in shadows as well. It's always going to be in suspicion what he might be trying to do by handing over Arrakis to a new house. One thing I didn't get is we're going to see Harkonnen and Stellan Skarsgård's going to explain to us why Harkonnen is out and why Atreides is in. And he says, the Emperor is a jealous man. What is the Emperor jealous of Atreides for? I could see jealous of Harkonnen because they specifically say richer than the Emperor. But what does Atreides do? Well, it's called out Artreides is just as powerful. The Harkonnens and Artreides are the most powerful, so that's why the Emperor wants to take them both down. I also think that there's some concern about the rumors that Leto might be the one in charge, but Paul, there's this belief, and you can hear it whispered throughout the universe, he's this messiah. He has the potential to unseat things, and everyone is a little bit worried about that. So I think for, yes, what the Emperor might be hoping is that these two houses destroy each other, and thus he can remain in his seat. We won't really know that until we see that actor, we see those moves. That will be coming in the second movie. But Paul doesn't really look like a messiah right now. Again, he very looks malnourished, and we get a fight scene early on because Jason Momoa is going to the planet early. He has to get an old dude out of retirement to train with. Gurney Halleck. Josh Brolin. My way of understanding this movie is analogs. And I'm like, oh, it's the new Patrick Stewart. It's going to be Josh Brolin. Yeah, and again, those are characters. I don't remember their names. I don't remember their roles besides Sting in his space underwear. So I'm like, yeah, I remember a fight scene with some really weird visual effects, boxy, like Minecraft style blocks around them. But yeah, what this person's name, what their role was, none of that stuff was retained in my memory. Yeah, I agree. Because we have more time, let's just put it out there. We just have more time to spend on this. We're going to get more time here in the first hour. Basically, Lynch's movie, the first hour is going to turn into two and a half hours. That just means we got room to breathe and room to meet these characters. Patrick Stewart was never anything more than an extra. And here, I definitely get 
Brolin's fire. I definitely see, you know, he's scarred up in the face and he's just fuming that the Harkonnens are brutal. And like the way he comes at Paul, you can see that this is, well, I'll call him a bigot, but he understands the danger of Harkonnens. He is trying to toughen up this kid for something that he is not taking serious enough. We are going into a trap. This thing that we're being handed off, we're being handed a lemon. The equipment don't work right anymore. There's assassins in the walls. Harkonnens have not left quietly. I like the new shield effects, too. I mean, I really liked what Lynch did with the shields, even though it didn't look real. It looked stylish. And I wondered, the gauntlet is laid down here. How can you match the visuals of the original Dune? And I think everything they did was done to differentiate. That's why no Space Baby. But it was also done as well, if not better. To be clear, Space Baby was Lynch. That wasn't in the book. The things that aren't here are because David Lynch is not at the helm. But I'm just saying that this movie is as visually impressive and as stylish as what Lynch did. Yeah. Of course, it has $100 million more in money as well. But yes, it clearly, again, the way I would differentiate it is we were in a David Lynch world last time, and now we are in Frank Herbert's book cover. But the storytelling here and the visuals, they just help me understand this world so much better because that's part of my problem. I'm watching that David Lynch one and I'm like, this is the future. Why don't they have laser beams? Why are they using swords? This should be like Star Wars. Here, well, there's technology that will just block everything that's fast. So you have to use slow moving blades. Like it just helps me understand this world and get me to buy into it and just want to explore it so much more now. I get that. Coherence was a high request. With the 84 movie, everyone was like, yeah, but I don't understand. That seemed to be the reaction from everyone. And now I don't think that's a complaint. You'll understand this in the same way you'll understand an episode of Game of Thrones. I mean, like, maybe you don't understand where, <laughs> like, all the Nine Kingdoms. I had to watch the first episode of Game of Thrones three times when I started that series. <laughs> and some people will have to watch this movie a couple times to get everything that we already kind of intuit because we've, this is Dune 3.0 for us. We have some retention about what's happened before. But yeah, I think in general, this movie asks a lot of the audience, but not too much. If you are familiar and like the kinds of, you know, labyrinthian storytelling we get on HBO series these days, you won't struggle with this movie. And I think that's a benefit because I don't have a problem if I don't understand every rivalry going on and every piece of technology. I get it. You're world building. Can you get me to buy into that world? Can you get me to want to just stay there and want to explore it? Lynch couldn't do it. Sci-fi, of course, couldn't do it. But this one is doing it. Like, do I understand everything 100%? No, but, oh, okay, I get why they're using blades and I get why this and that is going on. Like, I just feel like this is a more welcoming version of Dune for me where I'm now being absorbed into it. Coherence, I get it. That box is checked. They got this in spades. I'm going to ask another thing that I think is a premium that Lynch had. Fun. When we had some of these earlier scenes, maybe you didn't know what was going on, but there was a sense of adventure, I feel like, to them. Like, what's it going to be like when this kid gets there? Here, it's almost like this kid doesn't want to go, and everything is telling him when he goes, he's going to die. We get the box scene again, and it's way more ominous than the way that it played originally. 
Yeah, it becomes a horror film. And this is where I realized my wife was getting into this because, you know, we see Paul go into this room with the Reverend Mother and it's just already creepy and she uses the voice and it like just does this weird camera turn where all of a sudden he's kneeling before her. It's scary. And my wife's like, oh, wow. Like she wasn't expecting it. Like it totally caught her off guard. She's like, I'm into this now. Like this is so creepy. Okay. I said that this entire movie looked good and everything was great. That burning hand is bad CGI. <laughs> that is not good. Okay. But to my larger point, are you missing fun? Now, I know you didn't like the David Lynch movie, but the question, whether you did or not, my reference is, I feel like I laughed a lot during the 84 movie, sometimes at the movie, sometimes with the movie. Are you liking the fact that, as Jacob has said, it's all ominous and creepy all the time? I will say I'm missing some of that fun. Like, I remember, wasn't there someone with, like, milking cats? Yes. <laughs> and that Lynch one. Like, I kept waiting for the Eraserhead baby. Like, at one point, we'll see, like, some weird spider alien on the Harakin plant. I'm like, oh, yes. Like, I love that one. Yeah. Yeah, I did want more of that. I wanted just more weirdness. And I do feel like you called out. Everyone's wearing helmets, and it's very sterile. Like, I did want that Lynch strangeness in this as well. It is something I missed. I wanted personality. I feel, and I love horror movies. So if you want to give me a horrific Dune, cool. I really think that this scene's great. I feel like many scenes are great. But the cumulative effect of scene after scene being in the same monochrome color of dread wears on me. I do feel like I wanted more Momoa or somebody to make me smile. I'll agree in that... I was very in my own head watching this and thinking, I am into this movie and I love its visuals and I'm into the acting. I gotta give every actor here credit. You're right when you say this is a strong cast, although I felt Momoa pulled me out of it because he was so different. He was fun, but he was fun in that annoying, my man, Aquaman, Justice League way to me. About 50% of that for me, like, was not that high. But I'm pulled into this world and I'm enjoying this world while understanding that I may be enjoying the world building, but if you're here for something to happen, you're going to be really upset. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Maybe the biggest complaint I have, and it was true of all versions, I think it's true in the novel, is if you're going to focus on Paul and say Paul is our hero and Paul is the thing to focus on, you're going to be waiting around a lot because Paul is not an active character. Paul is something that lots of stuff happens to, but he doesn't do anything. Yeah, I know one of the comments one of my daughters made was like, oh, we're getting more new characters, a lot of characters, but I, to something that's come up a lot, like TV, like this does feel, yeah, maybe it's so big it should be a TV series, because a lot of characters, just a lot of stuff going on, but that's not necessarily a hit on this, like my daughters, they love like Netflix streaming series, like Squid Game, all those Flanagan ones, like that's the stuff they love, and they love getting into the characters, so maybe if this is the Gen Y Dune, like they're doing it right. They like it. Yes. They like this movie, or at least this beginning. They like that there's just characters to learn about and explore all their different stories. That's what they're into. I hadn't thought of the Game of Thrones analog until you said it, Stuart, but now I do see that there's probably a much bigger audience for this kind of world-building, slow, empire thing than before. However, that did have Peter Dinklage and incest episode one. And I think that helped a lot. 
I don't know. There is some weird Freudian vibes throughout this between Paul and his mom. Like, she'll go and wake him up, but he's hearing Zendaya and seeing Zendaya talk to him. And, like, they're going to stare at each other before they get undressed to put on some Fremen suits. Like, there's some Freudian stuff going on. I did catch that. That was weird. Some, but not as much as... I mean, you're not going to have the same sexual perversity that Lynch brought. I mean, that's just... Yeah, not, not as much as Lynch would like. <laughs> they're not going to go there, like where he's literally riding around the giant dick. And like, no, they're not doing that. No, they're saving that for part two. Yeah. <laughs> I guarantee you he's going to ride around in, in this movie, what looks like the uncircumcised penis. He's going to be riding that. No, no, because this movie is the opposite of that. Lynch's movie was about a man, I'm coming into my own, I'm going to conquer this planet, and my masculinity is my power. Plus, I can do some womenly shit with the voice, but I'm a man. Come on, Stuart, this movie ends with Paul saying desert power and looking at someone ride a worm. He's going to ride a worm. No, this movie ends with him seeing genocide and his rise to power. When I kill someone, I'm killing myself. This is a movie that rejects the idea of conquer. It does not accept that you can take from a planet and not get something blown back karmically on yourself. And that is another point of a lot more coherence for me in this. You talked about all those religious themes last time. Here in this one, Paul has this dual role. He's the son of the Duke, but he's also the daughter of Jessica, who's a Bene Gesserit, and he could either be a leader or he could be possibly a messiah, and he feels burdened by that calling. Like, you know, especially when he finds out that there could be a universal war in his name. Like, I just, I get all of that so much better. I get his conflict. Everything is so much clearer, and it just makes me more excited to be watching this version of Dune. Again, I hear you repeatedly saying coherence is such a wonderful thing, and I, I'm happy for you. It's not just a wonderful thing. It's getting me to want to live in this world. Even if we're not going to get a conclusion to this one, I want to come back because I'm interested in this world now because I can understand it more. But my point is that instead of getting Lawrence of Arabia and seeing at any given point that it's fun to suddenly become master of my domain, I've learned the force and suddenly I can blow up the Death Star. This is a movie that starts at I don't want to go and ends at everything I'm going to do is going to kill me and everyone else. Yeah, that's fascinating. Like, I love that. I grew up with Star Wars and the hero's journey, and I've said repeatedly, I want something about collectivism and get rid of the prophecy of the one. So another reason I'm into this one, because it's pushing against those cliches we've had in film and storytelling for millennia. Okay, I wanted to drill into that, because I think this one, more than the other two, emphasizes the fact that this Messiah thing is a racket. That the Bene Gesserit have been on Arrakis and for centuries seeded this fake religion. They thought that they were like making these primitive people superstitious so that they could be controlled. We'll see that after Paul passes the box test that Jessica more or less says that this has all been set up for you. We've done our best to try and make it so that we can control these people and exploit them. And so, yes, part of the rejection of the... Star Wars mentality is that this will be a character that does not want to fill that role. This is going to be a character that if he were to become Luke, it would be all part of a cynical deep state plot. And if you're coming here wanting Star Wars, you're going to leave extraordinarily disappointed. I suggest you get some popcorn on the way in because this is not a popcorn film. So <laughs> it's not going to serve you in that way. And that's why I'm of two minds about this. 
It's very, very interesting, but is it engaging? I'm still deciding. Yeah, I think that is the struggle. And again, I want to side with that. Jacob, some of your passion, I feel as well. Some of this is really exciting. And then some of it is, I feel like, the struggle to stay with the film. Here's what I wish. I know that if this were a TV series, I could focus on the characters I find more interesting in the beginning here. I could follow Leto. Like, I feel like he's the more interesting character. He's the one that's got to lead knowing that he's got to work with broken equipment and uh, convince a whole army of desert people that may want to stab him. And you would just want to spend more time with the dad. You really would want to understand this character more before he dies. And unfortunately... I feel like there's no room in this movie. It's a Paul-centric movie instead of an ensemble story. I agree. This is the first time in Three Tellings that I've wanted more of the father, but I think Oscar Isaac makes him a charismatic character, and Timothy Chalamet is doing his own thing, but where you are with Jason Momoa Stewart, I am with Oscar Isaac. He's bringing enough charisma and character that I want to follow him more than Chalamet. But Momoa's just, he's cranked it to 11. And Lady Jessica, too. I mean, I think that she's really, like, it's interesting when she has to review the housemaids or whatever. She has an interesting moment where, like, I'm going to pick the one with the concealed weapon. (laughs) Like, I'm going (laughs) to let go of everyone else that will probably fold the sheets really nice and go with the one that might be here to murder me. I love the little sign language thing they have where she can talk to the guards and later on she can talk to Paul just with little finger movements that nobody else can capture. Yeah, this was a really nice fix, right? We all hated the voiceover in David Lynch. Like it all was just way wall-to-wall book-on-tape narration that just don't do so much of it. And here, because they have people speaking in different dialects, sometimes it's subtitled, yeah, sometimes it's sign language, sometimes they let silence speak for itself. I do feel like, again, comprehension is not sacrificed in the way of trying to make this feel more cinematic and less of a frantic racing through of a book. But yeah, the Baron, like... I like Stellan Skarsgård. I guess he looks really scary here, but he ain't got nothing on Kenneth McMillan floating around pulling heart plugs off of, like, boy toys, right? Like, not (laughs) nearly as scary. Well, I didn't recognize him. I'm like, I thought that fat suit was real. And at first I thought, wait, I swear to God, Marlon Brando's dead, right? It looked like they (laughs) de-aged Marlon Brando from Apocalypse Now. There's a lot of Apocalypse Now in this movie all over the place. The choppers and... I mean, emerging from the water, like, Skarsgård's gonna do that. Yeah, (laughs) he's Colonel Kurtz for sure. But yeah, no, I recognized his voice. I'm like, oh, okay, that's Skarsgård. I know he's in this film somewhere. But yeah, when we first see him, it's like behind frosted glass or something. And he looks like a giant. He looks like he's nine feet tall, even though he's sitting there, but he's just massive. Yeah, it's its own image and it could work. I think maybe the problem is he doesn't have a lot to do. And maybe he didn't have a lot to do in the Lynch one, but they gave him business by having him being this sexual predator and what have you and all of that bathing and black blood and all of that they just he was scarier to me as a child than Darth Vader and this one how were your girls with him 
Oh, I mean, they like that there's a real horror vibe to this, as they would put it. Like, it's just a sense of dread throughout. And Mm -hmm. again, they've been watching all that Mike Flanagan stuff on Netflix, Bly Manor, Hill House, Midnight Mass. So they're into that. You know, it's October as we're recording this. They're into the spookiness. So, you know, I did show them a clip of that scene where he's going after that young servant in the Lynch one. And they just it was too campy for him. They're like, this this is like dumb. They liked, it was a darker, serious take. All right, so that's the thing to underline. Yes, Lynch, for all of his perversity, was campy. And that made it, to me, I'll translate it into, that made it kind of fun. Yeah. Whereas this movie is just so ominous and brooding all the time, there's never any fun. I will never use that word. It's compelling, but it's its own thing. Let me ask you, Stuart, because you keep bringing up that. I keep bringing up comprehension. You keep bringing up this point. You're missing the fun of Lynch. And why is that a problem that this is its own thing? Like, to me, this feels like almost 2001. Like, it is about just otherworldliness. And, like, 2001, yeah, Kubrick might have, like, a joke here or there. But I never think of fun in those kind of films. Like, it's just a different sense. Allow me to... Continue this Freaky Friday. Stuart, why does every movie have to be fun? (laughs) (laughs) As if I'm the one that always argues for that. Yeah. (laughs) No, but I think that it's a component that you would want to have when, again, watch Lawrence of Arabia, a drama, a tragedy, a failed coup, lots of things that would tell you in the end it was a glum piece. You wouldn't call that movie fun on its face, but in those early scenes, the Quicksilver performance of O'Toole, there's a spark there. There's a fire. You want energy. That's what I would say. You don't have to have fun. You want to feel like things are exciting and things are happening. And because all of this is set up and because of the characters that are doing things aren't being featured fully as main characters, we're stuck with this kid that's always dreaming of Zendaya. It just becomes weighty. It feels pretentious as opposed to feeling like... But you're always defending pretension and waiting. I, I just, I don't know what the difference is here now. What are you hearing me say? I like this movie. If you're not hearing me say this... I hear you saying that you like it, but you just wish it was more fun. It was more Lynch. It was less serious and pretentious, which you sometimes argue for in a film. I find this movie hard to watch. Okay, I never have that issue. After a while, I find my mind wandering and I find myself wanting to do other things. I will not have that issue until the last half hour, maybe. I'll agree with Stuart. I had that problem. I intentionally, because I was watching this at home, I probably scared Marjorie into not bothering me. I said, I want a theatrical experience for this. I want no interruptions. I don't want to hear a dog bark. I don't want a text. I want nothing. And... I went into this, and about halfway through, I'm like, you know, if somebody interrupted me, that might be a nice diversion. (laughs) Well, I'm just having a different experience then, because like I said at the beginning, I started watching this on my own in the upstairs bedroom, because my family doesn't want to watch this boring film, and then they're like, no, come down and join us. I'm like, I'm just going to start it over. I told them because they just need to see the whole thing to understand it. Secretly, I was getting really frustrated during the first 40 minutes when I'm taking notes, and then I miss I'm like, dang it, I just want to be able to absorb this film and enjoy the visual, so like, I'm just going to start it over, and at at least for the first 40 minutes, I could just bathe in the visuals again because that's what I realized I wanted to do as I watched this. Yeah, I agree. But when they try to make it more exciting, like when they have the action scene of the spice harvester and the lifter doesn't work and they have to try to get all the people off 
I don't feel like that works very well. I feel like it's not exciting action. Well, I got to ask you, Stuart, because it's something I noticed, Arnie, when we got out to the desert, and maybe it looks different on the big screen. I'm watching it on my television. For as much money as this has, there are certain shots during, yeah, some of these more action scenes where the CGI, however they composite it together, it doesn't look great, which shocked me. It's not a whole lot, but there are certain scenes, and I noticed it when these things are flying around or when they're going through desert landscapes, just every once in a while, it looked kind of cheap. Oh, wow. I There's something that I'll never complain about, the visuals in this movie. Well, it was just certain scenes, and they jumped out at me because it looked so beautiful, and then I'm like, oh, I guess they just didn't have enough time to render everything for that one. Yeah, there might be one or two shots. I think you're talking maybe about the probes that are scanning the surface for worm sign. Yes. Yeah, there's stuff that maybe you become aware that they're a special effect. Most of the time, things are done here so realistically, you just feel transported. I'm really here on Arrakis. I can touch this. I can feel it. I mean, they did not do a green screen room. This movie was shot on location in the United Arab Emirates in Jordan. You feel that. Yeah, I mean, there is a scene when they get to Arrakis. We saw Paul on his planet playing with the water, and then he's asked, you know, what does it feel like to be on another planet? I'm like, yeah, I feel that. Like, I feel like I've been transported. Like, for the most part, again, I'm complaining about a few frames because they stick out because most of this film looks so great. And I appreciate that, like, yeah, we're going to locations. We're not going to try to green screen everything in. Even though there's a lot of green screen here, I'm not going to say there's none. And I think that's really important. The director even spoke about this in some of the featurettes that are streaming on HBO. You can get all the bonus materials now if you want to when you stream the movie. And he said that part of this story is about ecology and being in a real place. If it felt all CGI composite, then that wouldn't come through. I do think perhaps the greatest gain of this version, the thing that comes through much better than any other version, is the ecologist. Liet Kynes, Max von Sydow barely made a ripple in that David Lynch movie. Oh, so this character was in the Lynch one? Oh, yes. I had no memory of who this was. Okay. Yeah, Max von Sydow has like two scenes before he's killed. Again, this movie... I rewatched it. It sounds like you guys haven't seen Lynch since we covered it a few years ago, but I rewatched it just a few days before watching this movie, and it is more or less, scene by scene, the same progression. There's a few added things, but by and large, there are not whole new storylines or scenes in this movie. That's my experience. I haven't watched it since, but... I feel like I remember Lynch's Dune very well. And so, yes, I was surprised how much this is an analog for it. Mm-hmm. But, of course, it feels very different. And that's the idea, is that we want to make it more realistic, more grim and brooding. And we want those themes that got skirted over, particularly about ecology. Keep in mind, Dune was written with an ecological message in mind. Frank Herbert was researching how greenery is destroyed by an encroaching sand dune on the West Coast. That was where the genesis for all of this started. Here we get a lot of, well, maybe not a lot, but I feel like I hear things from the book I've never heard before about how this once could have been a green planet, but the Harkonnens and the Imperium chose instead to mine it for spice. This is a Dune world because of the plundering. Yeah, they say they were going to, like, terraform the planet. They was going to create oceans. They're going to do, like, what Arnold does in Total Recall, bring water to Mars, or Arrakis in this case. But then they're like, oh, no, we could just strip mine it for spice, and that's way more profitable. Let's do that. 
Again, I get everything so much better in this version. Yeah, I definitely think that it comes through cleaner, and I think it's helpful in casting. It was a very white cast in the Lynch movie. Here, they've casted in terms of racial identity. I do feel like when Atreides gets off the ship, they're playing bagpipes. This is Europe. This is England, right? This is the colonizers. Yes. (laughs) And then all of the desert people are brown and black-skinned, and I do think... We are to think of the Middle East and, yeah, Lawrence of Arabia again. I feel like that comes through really... It's better to have the woman that's playing Liet Kynes than Max von Sydow. She definitely feels she's more Fremen, and there's a lot of mystery built around whether she's working for the Emperor or working for the Fremen when they go out there in that scene and see the spice miner get attacked by the worm. And, yeah, you say it's not much of an action scene, I agree, because it's more about... Paul going on an acid trip. It's about him ingesting that spice and kind of just tripping out there in this moment of danger. That, that, that is, like, look, that's my review for this whole film. It's much more interested in tripping you out on visions than adrenaline. Yeah, hallucinatory, 2001. That's definitely, this is Paul, I think, for the first time touching the actual sand. You know, he's been there for a while, but he was flown in. He landed on concrete. Here, when they're trying to rescue all of the spice harvesters, he actually gets to touch that sand. They do a lot with that. Again, I feel like in order to make their symbols, they repeat imagery too much in this movie. But yeah, there's a lot of hands touching things. And he ingests spice in a heavy dose for the first time. There's a big windstorm and it blows right in his face. And this is, I think, the point where he realizes he has a vision of his own death. Someone is going to hand him a knife and he is going to die. He's going to get stabbed. Maybe even Zendaya is the one that's going to stab him. It's Again, this is not a vision of, oh, things are going to be great for me in the future. It's a vision of, man, I am fated to fail here. I think that's a little bit vague. I get that his visions are weighty, but I also get that his visions aren't always 100%. He tells Jason Momoa, if I come with you, I can stop you from dying. Although I don't see how that happens, because by the time Jason Momoa dies, he's already on that planet. But I feel like that tells me that his visions aren't immutable, that the future could be changed. I don't know. That vision of Jason Momoa's character, Duncan Idaho, comes true. He's going to join with the Fremen and die with the Fremen. Like, he was right. I think he was hoping he could stop that. Maybe he doesn't understand the timeline, but I feel like these visions are pretty clear. Like, literally, you're going to die so the Messiah could rise. I think every vision is true, but he doesn't understand the context. Yeah. He thinks he's going to die when he picks up that knife at the end. And in fact, they're going to put a lot of lip service. Literally, there's going to be whispering to tell you there's a part of him that's dying. That The old him is dying or whatever, but like he's just becoming the Quizette Hazaret. I'm just going to say Messiah. I can't say all these weird words they have. <laughs> yeah, that one's hard to say. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we're nearing the coup. And I feel like it would have been a benefit to have several episodes here of intrigue, like ending one night with the little hunter seeker, like little mosquito thing flying in and almost killing Paul. I feel like that would have been a good cliffhanger. Like, I feel like I would want time away from this. I'm not saying that I'm disliking it. It might sound like that. I really do like what they're doing here, but I want a break. I want to like break this up. I don't want to go in a movie length into this world. I want to saturate in it, come back to it week after week. I wouldn't even want to binge this. This is something that you want to sample in small doses. Too much spice at once, and you're really <laughs> going to need like to go to the ER. And it feels like the logical place to end this movie is with the coup. There will be 40 minutes after the coup. That feels like a mistake. We should have it be the house falls end of movie. 
I agree completely. I think that this feels like the closest thing this movie has to a climax, and it's not all that climactic. Yeah, I thought this is what they were going to build up to, was this big battle and then maybe end it, because it's been going a while. But I love the build up here. They go to this Imperial Army planet. And like, it's just throat singing and like, just give me an hour episode of that, that there's one episode of television I want for this Dune series. It's just throat singing military guys. Oh uh, yeah. Seleucus Secundus was not well visualized in any previous version. And yeah, I do. I want more time here. This was in another version? <laughs> yes, it was in the sci-fi channel movies. They actually dragged the worm here and breed it. And maybe they'll do that. I don't know. But in case it's too nerdy for you to follow, I'll just put it out here and saying, this is the emperor's dirty secret place. This is his Guantanamo Bay, where he does all the secret stuff and has an army that is loyal to him, a kill squad that will go and do shadow work, dirty stuff. And we've seen that his reverend mother already was hoping Paul would die when he put his hand in the box. Oh, no, maybe he is this prophecy, or maybe he's just lucky. He's more than an animal at any rate. So we need to just go kill this whole family by sending these troops in and taking them out. I think this is the most exciting part of the movie, Arnie. You think the opening battle is great? I think this is the obvious climax of part one. I do love just how obliterated House Atreides gets here, like totally caught off guard. And it's beautiful looking like the end of this battle, you'll just see like thousands of missiles dropping from some ship and curling all around as they fly through the air to blow up everything. Like it's a fantastic looking battle. It's slow. It's deliberate. Like it is not Rise of Skywalker where Lando flies in with a million ships at the end. But I don't know. I'm really vibing to this total obliteration of the House Atreides here. I wish it was more exciting, I guess. Given how long we've spent with world building, I really wanted this to be a huge, exciting, you know, it, if it has aspirations to Star Wars with that opening crawl or opening monologue, I wanted this to be more. And it's okay. You know what, though? I mean, it fits this movie. It would be very strange, I suppose, to go through the movie we've gone through and suddenly have Lando Calrissian show up with a whole bunch of other people, but... <laughs> I don't think so, Arnie. I think you're right to say, I want adrenaline. It's plenty exciting. It's very exciting to watch a city be obliterated on this level of spectacle. Wow, great, amazing visuals. But I'm not exactly rooting for anyone. You know, if I'm rooting for anyone, again, Jason Momoa, he has a good fight scene in the hallway. And Gurney, he goes running into battle, facing this horde as they come landing down, as all his ships are exploding. These are exciting, but we haven't had a lot of time with those characters. Again, it's so Paul-centric that these almost feel like afterthoughts happening in the background when they should be big moments. And the fact that there's a little less suspense because... The Bene Gesserit said you can't kill Paul or his mother. You can kill everybody else of House Atreides, but the mother is one of the Bene Gesserit, and so is her son, and so they are off limits. And so even though the Baron says, okay, well, we don't need to kill them, the desert will kill them, you know that they're going to get out of this okay. Yeah, and I was missing the fact that, I agree, that limits it, but I was also missing the fact that it was a big part of the book that this makes Jessica suspicious 
to Gurney. We don't see what happens to Gurney. No, he just disappears in this film. <laughs> we see him running into battle, and then we see lots of those troops end up like being put on their knees and getting beheaded. And Dave Bautista, like, they always do this annoying thing of he's swinging his sword and then they cut away because they can't show you the severed head. Wait for the unrated cut. I know it's coming, but you really do want to see some of this gore. I think in order to have the full effect of the horror, you would want to see this stuff. I agree. I could feel the PG-13 of this film when I didn't know what it was rated when I went in. Yeah, no, exactly. I didn't know it was rated. I'm like, oh, let me hurry and check. Am I going to have to, like, tell the girls to close their eyes during some, like, nudity scene or sex scene or something? And I'm like, oh, it's PG-13? I'm like, I guess that's why we don't see heads rolling whenever it looks like someone got beheaded. Yeah. So, but you might think that Gurney was just killed in all of that. But if they do what's in the book, he will hook up with some spice miners and have his own adventures. And he will believe that Jessica, because she lived in all of that, is the engineer. He will come back for her. I don't know that that's clear in that version. Maybe they can make that work. But again, that's having more time in the hours before this big coup. This would maybe be the end of season one if you were designing it as a TV series and you would have had eight, ten episodes of knowing all of these characters' details intimately, knowing exactly who they were aligned with and what they want. But Jessica, yeah, she's got the voice. And because Paul has been studying with her, they're able to tag team and kill this Harkonnen group that has been told to not kill them, but just leave them conveniently out in a worm-filled desert where they couldn't possibly survive. I do like the scene. Like, Paul tries to use the voice. He doesn't get that pitch right. There's that build-up moment. Did it work? And, of course, that guard just, like, hits him for trying to tell him to ungag his mom. And then, of course, it does work. But the real hero is Jessica. Like, she's the one. Like, as soon as she can get that gag off, she starts using that voice and getting them to kill each other. And she's quite tough herself. I guess this is foreshadowing for what's going to happen with Stillgard later, that she can fight, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like her a lot, and I feel like Rebecca Ferguson, she was a highlight of those Mission Impossible movies. She brought something new when she was introduced in, I think, part five, and she's got an old-world Hollywood glamour at the same time that, yeah, she credibly can do this action. I look forward to seeing her in the second half of the story. She's going to give up birth. We know that's the other thing she's fated to do. We don't see from the Lynch version that creepy kid Alia she's going to have. Not here yet. Yeah, they set up that Paul was actually supposed to be a girl and she manipulated that pregnancy. And so, yes, now I'm anticipating, oh, she's going to have a girl. I remember, wasn't that like, there's something with a brother and sister in those sci-fi TV films, I think. But yes, this made it much more clear, like, oh, okay, that's something to explore in the second one. Like, maybe that is the true Messiah and it's not Paul because it was supposed to be female. We have one scene with Jessica and Leto in which he basically, it sounds like it was his request. The reason why he married a witch. It's not typically what Dukes do. They didn't get married. Well, yes, fair enough. But the reason why he hooked up with her is that she could promise him a son. That was the deal that they struck. And there is no romance in this world. Everything is about alliances and power grabs and calculation. But the idea is that he does have some feeling for her, but mostly it was about this son. He asked her to protect Paul and to use the Bene Gesserit protection to keep him safe. He kind of seems to know that he's a goner. And again, it would be nice to have more scenes with him before he's shot with the dart and has to get the gas tooth. But I like all his scenes. Yeah, he does drop a line that, oh, I wish I would have married you. That tells me like there was something at the end, like he did love her. 
Yeah, he does get that tooth. I'm surprised how ineffective that is. It kills a bunch of guards and it sends Lord Baron like to the rafters. He's like floating way up there, I guess, to get away from the gas. Yeah, I think that it's actually much more effective. In the Lynch version, it was more just like he didn't aim his mouth right and he ended up killing the <laughs> Harkonnen Mintat. Yeah, this is filling up that whole room, killing everyone. Yeah, and that Mintat in this version is played by, boy, he's having a moment. David Dachmalshin is really having a moment here at Now Playing. Is this Polka Dot Man? Yes, Polka Dot Man. We've seen him remove his jaw. Like, he's done all kinds of freaky things here. He is the... It gets underserved even in this version, but everyone... Every house has a Mintat. You use Spice to do calculations and math. Because they don't trust computers anymore, they have humans do all of that addition and subtraction by taking a whole bunch of Spice... We've seen that the Baron had his underling. He's the one that's killed by the gas. Baron, because he can float, I guess. And he has shields, too. You'll notice he activates the shield before he approaches Leto. Yeah, but the gas is slow moving. We see it turn red. That tells you it's getting through those shields. Yeah. And Baron, I think, is impacted. He's very sick. He will take a long time to recover in a... Oil bath? (laughs) Yeah, what is that? It looks like when I go to Italian restaurants and get that, like, olive oil and vinegar mixture (laughs) together. That is true. Yeah, it looked like two fluids in there. But I'm telling you, there is, again, the sense of dread and ominous in this film is so effective when you have Dave Bautista going up and talking to him. Like, Skalsgård, the Lord Baron, is just sitting under this water. He's talking to, like, an empty pool, it looks like. And I don't know. There's something so disturbing about that scene. More disturbing, different, or not as effective than Kenneth McMillan. I do want all those like boils and stuff on the Baron's face. I do love that. I agree. I wanted more. I missed the campiness. Yeah, I didn't want campy. I wanted some physical ramifications of this poison, though. I wanted the makeup on Skarsgård is so good. I got really excited thinking what they could have done next. And they didn't. Well, we haven't really seen him fully emerge. The one moment he pops up and says, okay, we're back in control. And you got to think about it this way. Now spice production is totally upheavaled. No one's out there mining anymore because... They blew up all their gear. (laughs) Yeah, like all of it's gone. We have all this spice in reserve. We're going to sell it at a higher price. It's just a line of dialogue. But you realize that the Baron is going to be able to overcharge and really make bank now. And that's where I do agree the film should have ended. Like, boom, come back for part mm-hmm. two. Scary stuff. The bad guys have won. But yeah, we're going to get like, what, a half hour of desert walking? That would be a great start to movie number two, except I think that would probably overload how much there is to do in movie number two. Yeah, but I think you could have made this a little bit longer. And again, just give those supporting characters, again, ensemble, Robert Altman movie, not Star Wars, not Luke. Paul just doesn't work as a central character for me. And it's no discredit to Timothy Chalamet. I think he's really brooding in a way that's very believable, and I feel for him. I just don't find him the most interesting character on the screen. And so why must we always go back to Paul and him prophesying this spice dream? Again, if I see one more dream of him and Zendaya, I'm just going to scream in this movie. It just drives me nuts how that's all he really gets to do. He digs himself out. It should be said, Dr. Yui did betray them, but really 
It was all just so he could get the wife that we know that the Baron has this habit of promising you things using language that means you don't actually get what he promises. And the wife is dead. Dr. Yui is dead. But Dr. Yui left them still suits. He left them a tent. They're able to make it for a while in the desert on their own. And he sees that little Maudi. We finally see the little desert mouse. Is this a Jawa cute? That was a very cute mouse and it looked real. I got to give it that. Yeah. Was that a big part? You know a name for it. So was that a big part of the book or something? Uh, Yes. If you go back to the David Lynch version. He had that in there? Well, no, they didn't have the mice. It just, Kyle McLaughlin says, what is the name of your desert mouse? Mwadib. And so I will be called Paul Mwadib. Okay. (laughs) There's a identification in this scrawny little animal and scrawny little Paul, and how it's going to have great power even though, and survive in this desert. I think there is symbolism to draw. Yes, because that David Lynch reference, like, don't recall that at all here. It was a big moment, because partly that desert rat's so cute. And yeah, Paul's looking at it and go, okay, this is who he is. He's like this little desert rat on this great dune planet, and if this little desert rat can make it, then maybe he can. Visually, it tells me everything I need to know. And here all I'm thinking with the desert rat is, it's sweating a lot. You could get a lot of drink out of it. Oh yeah, its ears are like a cup of juice. Yeah. (laughs) They probably felt like they'd lose the audience if Paul picked up the mouse and started drinking from its ears. (laughs) He started licking its ear, yeah. Yeah, that would just, I can't go with you no more. You're too weird, dude. I was just thinking like milking it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the David Lynch version. (laughs) Yeah, well, again, what you might do in the desert doesn't play to an audience that has plenty of popcorn and soda at their ready, and just, it would be too gross. But yes, Paul is becoming something else. This is the moment where he needs to step up and be an active character. This is where I feel like I want to see him say, okay, this is where I'm going. But instead, this is where I feel he does. No, it's Jason Momoa and the ecologist blowing in and saying, we're going to go over to this water station and have another action scene that doesn't really involve you. Yeah, I do feel like this action scene, even though I guess it's the death of Duncan Idaho, so maybe we need it, but we could have cut all this. Again, just get to that tribe. If that's your goal in this film, to get to that tribe at the end and have Paul accepted, let's get there. This It's not a big action scene, and the action isn't so great like it needed to stay. You could have cut it. Well, here's the thing. Duncan Idaho, what I hear they're doing is they're not only adapting all of this book, but they're adapting... Dune Messiah, which is the second Dune novel, but would be the third chapter in a trilogy. And Dune Messiah, we know that story if you remember the sci-fi channel. <laughs> which I don't. Mm-hmm. I do. Duncan comes back. I'll just leave it at that. If you know that story, you know that this is not the end for Jason Momoa. He will have a second act. But it looks like he's gone down, like Paul prophesied. And it does mean that, again, Paul is starting to really look like this messiah because he's getting so much right even the ecologist is feeling like yeah you know how to put on the still suit without any instruction and you just again maybe it's a problem being too perfect a mary sue if you will but it's like everything's going so well for you i thought that actually when i was watching this as he felt very mary sueish there was nothing he can't do right The only reason he couldn't beat everybody in a fight is Jason Momoa locked a door. Yeah. Again, and I would say that if he were an active character, you would see more of this struggle and you would see him making choices. And instead, it's people telling him, go run to the helicopter or whatever. And just, I don't know. I don't feel like it's a movie that features Paul very well as an active character. So don't make it about Paul. And this is where I feel he really 
really starts to come into his own is after his father dies, he becomes the one making decisions and... No, he doesn't. Getting him and his mother out of there. That was the scientist telling them where to go and that it was only a two-seater and she couldn't come with. He's flying the ship, I'll give you that, but he is not making active choices. They crash and they just wander. There is no definitive... Nothing. No, I think we do see a big choice when he's in that ship and they're being chased and they have to go into the storm. And basically he remembers Bruce Lee, be like water, and turns the ship (laughs) off and just lets it get blown around by the sandstorm. They don't die and they're able to get away. I agree. He becomes the hero here when he becomes the pilot and has to no longer be protected. He has to get them out of that situation and to the Fremen. This is the only reason you keep the movie going is so Paul does something in this movie. Well, yeah, it's about Paul getting to killing a man is what you're trying to really get to. The fact that he's made his first kill is very significant if you're saying the conclusion of this story is Dune Messiah, which is all about genocide and Paul's legacy. Okay, I guess he did make a choice there. Did you see it as a heroic use the force moment? Did you feel like, wow, I want to do that too? No, but that's not what this film is. I saw it as a moment that is consistent with the logic they've set up in this film, that you got to listen to the Fremen and become one with the Earth and not push against it. So, no, that's not as exciting as Luke Skywalker pulling out a lightsaber, but it's logically consistent with this film, and because this film has got me to buy in, I'm into the moment. Yeah, Jacob, we're not having a disagreement. I'm just asking you to think about excitement. Wouldn't you want to be a little excited? I think about it a lot because I'm always telling you to think about it when you don't want it. (laughs) Then how interesting that we wound up here because I feel like, yeah, maybe we're playing different roles, but I feel like wouldn't you want this next 30 minutes to be more exciting than it is? Yes, this last half hour, I have problems with. This is where, if I wasn't watching this for now playing, I'd probably pull out the phone and start playing some game because, yeah, it lags here this last half hour. Very much so. And if this movie were Lawrence of Arabia and you were going to just say, screw it, there's going to be an intermission and you're going to come back and watch two hours more of movie and we're going to do everything we want to do in one movie, then... I would go with this a lot more, but as it is, this feels so anticlimactic after everything, and I'll admit, I hit pause several times in this last half hour to see how much more I had to do. I think everyone feels that way. I could feel it in the theater. The packed crowd, they were never cheering, but I felt engagement, and then at this point, I saw lights, you know, all around the theater, people (laughs) looking at phones, and just the sense that, like, it's long. I'm feeling the length of this movie. It's not helpful to remain here unless something significant is going to happen. Yeah, the last time probably a mass audience went to a movie this long, at this point in that film, Infinity War, like, there's a humongous battle going on with these characters we've seen for the last 15 years or whatever. Like, yeah, if that is your expectation, no, that is not the end of this film. It is, let's walk through the desert and talk to some more Fremen. Which is disappointing, I will admit that. Mom is getting ready for bed at this point, and I feel like, yeah, I would like to be doing something else as well. But I love Javier Bardem in this film. When he showed up as the leader of the Fremen earlier, I heard the voice. I didn't recognize his face because he's under a beard and heavy robes. And I was like, 
that sounds like Javier Bardem, but I don't think he's worked since Bond. So I looked it up. I'm like, oh, it is Javier Bardem. And I really do like him as the leader of the Fremen. So I am happy to see him be the one who shows back up. I feel like his earlier moment was highlighted by Momoa, like teaching that spit doesn't mean an insult, that you actually (laughs) are giving your liquids. And that's, again, Momoa gets the laugh out of Bardem's earlier scene. What got the laugh out of me in that earlier scene was Gurney, played by Josh Brolin, who didn't get along with Harvey Bartem in No Country for Old Men, just saying, yeah, I don't like that guy. We don't get along. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a nice meta moment. But yes, you know what? When reading that novel, I never imagined Javier Bardem in this role. It was Ed from Twin Peaks in the David Lynch version. And he was just always more affable and agreeable. And here it really does feel like, although he's appreciative that the Atreides are not Harkonnens, he is not ready to give a hug. After mom and son like run from the worm, they're like, we're going to take your water. And I think this is what's interesting for me, even though it's kind of boring and I'm like, okay, let's wrap it up. What's interesting is this whole time I've been told Fremen have been calling out Paul as the Messiah. And maybe that's because the Bene Gesuit has been, you know, planting these seeds. But now here is a skeptical group of Fremen. They're like, yeah, yeah, we want to kill you and drink your water. And Stilgard only wants to take Paul. And so there's going to be a little bit of a fight here where Jessica shows she's tough, but She's tough because she has the weirding way he's going to call out. I remember the weirding way being really cool in the first Dune. Here, I couldn't even tell she was weirding. It's the voice. Weirding means you can basically hypnotize people with your voice. I don't think she really did a lot of that. It's all looked more like combat to me. But the weirding way, I don't know. It'll be curious to see how they demonstrate it in the next movie. To David Lynch, it meant putting on a Mr. Microphone and like talking funny and making things blow up. Yeah, because it's all about sound for David Lynch. Sound and electricity. That's an interesting development. I wish there was more action. Wish it was more exciting. But it's still keeping me in a little bit with the drama, with these developments, because I've been into it thus far. And yeah, now that Fremen don't think he's the Messiah. Oh, this is an interesting development here. No version has featured Jameis before. And the reason why is Jameis is a complicating ripple for the Paul character. If you're trying to sell Paul as your new messiah, saddling him with the kill where I'll just go ahead and spoil this. Jameis has a whole wife and kids and Paul will have to adopt them and serve as the father figure in that relationship, as well as Romance Cheney, as well as Mary, the emperor's daughter. He's got a whole lot going on in his personal life because of Jameis. It would be so easy to cut this clean and not bring in the fact that he has to murder a man in order to become part of the Fremen. But that's not the point of this Dune. This Dune says no action can be taken without consequences that are negative. And they give Paul every chance to look in the right because he's like, do you yield? And there's no yielding in this fight. Paul, it's kill or be killed. So he has to do it. I mean, that's how the movie sells it okay. Not only that, but he's had this vision earlier and it was he's the loser. He's entering a fight believing that someone will hand him a knife and, well, at least according to the vision, it's almost like Cheney stabs him. But in fact, Jameis has also appeared in other visions and been called a friend. That was the interesting thing. This is your friend and follow your friend and, you know, a lot of New Age speak there. But he did not see Jameis as the person that was going to kill him. But I think this is all metaphor. Paul does die on this battlefield. We now have the Quisette Hazaret. 
Yeah, it's a big moment. They'll call out, he's never killed anyone. And I just, so much of this movie has been impactful to me where it's like just pulled me in. I wish this meant more that when he finally kills someone. I I don't know, you got to set things up earlier that he doesn't like to harm things or whatever, but this should have been more impactful. Yeah, I didn't realize this was his first kill is the funny thing until they said it out loud. And again, we can't play this as triumph. It can't even be played for like the kind of action adrenaline that we normally get in a Hollywood product because this movie is so much about pacifism and Lynch's film was about transcendental meditation too. It was about a character that was more mind than body, but I do think it doesn't give the audiences a whole lot to hook into as a character. What's weird is what is this film ultimately? Well, it's about a lot of things, but what is the, I guess the basic story structure? What is the basic conflict? If this was a standalone film or you just want to watch this one? Yeah. What do you guys say to that? I'm really curious to hear. It seems like the major conflict is, or if I was going to sum it up, there's like, okay, you got this rich kid and he goes on this planet where maybe people need help, but he's just going to go away. But then he changes his mind at the end and he's going to stay and start a revolution and help them. Like, I guess that's what they're going for. It just doesn't seem like this big, impactful moment when he's like, no, we're going to stay because his mom still wants to get off planet. But he's like, no, desert power. And like, I wish it hit me harder. Listen, I really analyzed my thoughts on this. If I knew nothing about Dune, if they had taken away part one from the beginning of this and just said Dune in the opening credits, when this movie ends, I'd be like, that's it? That's not a story. That's not a climax. That's not a full arc. And I would walk out feeling like I had seen half a movie and being very pissed about that. Well, it is half a movie, but will you be pissed? I will say from my wife's experience, who, again, she watched the David Lynch movie when she was a kid and her dad liked it, but she retains no memory. This is basically all new to her. We get to the end of this film and she's like, okay, start the second half. Like, it's out, right? Like, we could binge all this right now. She wanted more. Like, she was so into it. She was very upset that she's going to have to wait. Did she say what she expected to happen for Paul? No, because then I'd end up probably, like, giving out some spoiler or something. So I I didn't want to have that conversation. No, no, no. You don't want to spoil for people that haven't read the book or seen the sci-fi movies and all that. But I am very curious to think... What does someone looking at Paul in this moment think? To me, you're saying, what was this movie about? It was about a kid that believed that his parents were doing something bad and he wanted to do something different. And then his dad tried to say, no, I'm going to be a kinder, gentler, more environmentally friendly leader of this planet and dies for it. And now he's made the choice to pick up the sword that will end in horrible things. This is the beginning of a tragedy. This is not the beginning of of a story in which a messiah fulfills a destiny. Thank you, because I was trying to figure out the genre of this movie when I'm watching it. I'm like, it's sci-fi, but that's a cop-out. Is it drama? Is it action? What is it? Tragedy. Tragedy is what it is. Perfect. Yeah, I'm willing to bet that she's not expecting a tragedy, that Paul is going to rise up and free the Fremen and they're going to take their planet back. I don't think she has a sense that how dark it could go. Agreed. Even though we did have one of his visions was like in his name, you know, he has that freak out in the tent of they're doing it in my name. And we see all these soldiers waving flags and even he's in some gold suit stabbing a bunch of people and flipping like a ninja. Oh, that moment did blow her away. Yeah, you get this fantasy and he pulls that mask up and you see that it's Paul. She's like, 
oh, like something big. Like that was a big moment for her, like that I think pulled her in and wants to, <laughs> she wants that second half. She wants to see how that vision plays out. Yeah, in the second half, he's going to become that. But in the third half, if they get there, <laughs> you're going to find out that's a terrible, terrible thing. So Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Dune Part 1? Jacob. You guys got a sense of what I was thinking going in. Like, it looked visually amazing when I saw those trailers, but I'm like, it's still Dune. And it's still this weird, nerdy thing that even a nerd like me doesn't want to get into. It's just, it's a level deeper. I'll do Lord of the Rings. I don't want to do Dune. And so, sure, maybe this will look great, but uh, it's going to be real boring. And to my surprise, yes, Stuart, comprehension. Just letting me understand things that are going on pull me into this world. I couldn't believe how effective it was to get me into this world. Now, maybe I've matured. Like we talked about, I think, when we did the original David Lynch one, like we were kids. Like I was expecting Star Wars when I saw that as a kid and it wasn't Star Wars and it's its own thing. So maybe I've matured in those, I don't know, few years since we've done those David Lynch films. But this one really got me pulled in and excited. Now, look, my wife, she's like, we need the second one now. I was shocked. I thought she was going to hate this. That's why I was going to watch it by myself. She was loving it. For me, that last half hour kind of kills some of that excitement for me because it just really slows down. But no, this is a slow, deliberately paced film where if you're not feeling that vibe, if you're not feeling that mood, if you're not pulled in by the visuals, yeah, you're probably going to pull out your phone. But it totally hypnotized me for most of the running time until we got to just walking around in the desert and that final battle. And why is that your ending for this film? Like, yeah, make it the Harkonnens taking back over. So yeah, there's some things that could be corrected here. Definitely. But overall, this film had me very excited. Like I would watch it again right now, even that last half hour, though I might play some Candy Crush during it. (laughs) But, But no, I think, look, this is different. One of the things that was interesting, one of my daughters asked when I turned it on, she's like, oh, so is this like in the Marvel universe or something? because they're just over that. I'm like, nope, this is its own thing. These are very nerdy books that they're based on. And that actually got kind of perked up because, yeah, it's different than the big blockbusters that we've been used to over the last few years. You don't often get something like this because usually they're financial disasters and maybe this one will make its money, maybe it won't. This is maybe not the most satisfying storytelling, but as a just a, an experience of sitting in front of a screen and being pulled into a world... I really enjoyed this. One of the best movies I've seen this year. Strong recommend. Stuart. And I, you know, I'm more cautious on this. I thought coming into this, I guess I was the opposite of you, Jacob, is I thought it would be easy. Yeah, I, you are shocking me with your review. Yeah, no, I. this is going to be the definitive version. Like throw out your VHS copy of Lynch, use those sci-fi channel DVDs as coasters because this is all you need. I thought for sure that they would just nail it. And what I walk away feeling is that it was another admirable attempt that didn't quite stick the landing. And of course, they didn't finish. But even in its introductory first steps here, I feel like, eh, this is not everything I would want in a Dune movie. Now, of course, this director's, his passion for the universe is evident in every inch of every frame of footage. He's got the budget. He's got the talent. He's really taken the time to cultivate a believable, lived-in Arrakis that is comprehensible and brooding and terrifying. We are there, and it is very transportive. The reason why you want to see this movie is it will take you to another world. But I have always found that this director also has a very heavy hand. 
and all of the movies that he makes, there's this weightiness. And by the time that this movie stops at the midpoint of the story, I feel done. I'm the opposite of your wife. I'm like, I would not hit play on the next chapter. I would take a week at least before I would want to go back into this highly oppressive environment. I mean, that's really what it feels like. But doesn't this feel like the property that should be weighty and oppressive? I don't know. That's kind of how I've always felt about Doom, except no one gave me a doorway to get in until now. I agree. I love the fact that it's not every other movie. It's not a Marvel movie. It's not a Star Wars movie. It's got its own concerns. And some of them are just, yeah, more complicated, more sophisticated than just a boy's adventure in the desert. But you do want some of that. I mean, even Lawrence of Arabia, which is also a tragedy and three hours long, it knows that in the beginning we have to be with our main character. And my problem mostly here is Paul. Paul hates his destiny at the beginning. He's all Fremen lives matter from the word go. And then everything just happens to him. He doesn't make these active choices. He isn't the focal point of the first half of the book. He shouldn't be, and he isn't, and he's not capable of it. And so we spend all this time waiting for him to do something other than pine for Zendaya. And the struggle here is like he is the least inspiring messiah since Donny Osmond put on the Technicolor dream coat. You know, like, <laughs> ouch. I just, I don't care about him. He's not it yet. Maybe he'll get there. And I like this actor, but I don't care about this Paul. Period. So I'm not emerging from this experience screaming masterpiece, but I will definitely say go see it. It is a transported movie, beautifully monochromatic in all of its gloom, great production design details. Really, I was with the movie solidly until the coup. And then that last 40 minutes, I think we're all saying that, is a real struggle. You would want to take breaks from this. It is exhausting as a vision. Compelling as a vision and also exhausting. And so, yeah, I haven't given up on this, but I'm glad we're going to have a couple years to process it before we get back. Good cast, good entry, good visuals, low energy. My advice for part two, stop doing the spice, drink some Red Bull, we'll have a good time. <laughs> and I'm really torn on this because it is so gorgeous and so wonderfully technical in its sound and the makeup on Skarsgård and other characters too. Skarsgård's the standout, but all the makeup effects are good. The visuals are gorgeous. And so much of this is practical. I think it should be called out. They only had 160 million for this, which these days is cheap for an epic sci-fi film. Yeah, this looks like 300 million on the screen. Easily. It looks as good as any of the Avengers films that cost $500 million. So the money was used well, and they brought in really good actors to give good performances. And so in that way, it's a really strong recommend. But it is also at times dull as hell and really dragging. And if you're looking for a movie where a lot of things happen excitingly and you're looking for a space epic adventure... The word adventure doesn't really exist here. And so that becomes a strong not recommend. <laughs> and so I really found myself caught in the middle of, I really like what they've done and I like the world building and I like the characters and I'm hungry for part two, which I do think that last half hour should have been part of, but then I'm judging this for what it is and so in the end, I'm going to have to make a personal judgment. I don't know that I really recommend this movie to everybody because I think a lot of people are going to walk out of this really frustrated. 
but I really enjoyed immersing myself in this world. And so I'm going to eke it over into recommend because I feel like the world building and things are really something to behold. And I think that's something I can say about this director because I felt his world building in the Blade Runner film was very good. Well, I'm here to tell you, HBO Max, they're already greenlit. It's happening. There is a prequel series focusing specifically on the Bene Gesserit. If you like these witches, if you find their, you know, like, I don't know if it's going to be, like, charmed. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> or something like that. But it seems Dune, the Sisterhood, I imagine it focusing on Monhaim, the Charlotte Rampling character. I think it will all be about the Emperor and how, you know, we've had all of this inference that they've made all of these genetic pulling of strings to make a Quisette Hatterack happen, I think you're going to see how they control power from the shadows. That is happening. Is anybody from this movie in that series, or is it a prequel where they're able to say it's in the same universe, but have different actors? Exactly. The open-ended question. I know it's all written. I know HBO has given it a go. They'll probably film it soon, and we'll probably get those answers in a year's time, would be my guess. And you know what? It inspired me. I feel a little bit bad. I was lapsed on my books and nachos. I had originally had the idea. I was so passionate about Dune. I was going to cover the original six Frank Herbert novels. I got to number three. <laughs> we got to Children of Dune and I just, life happened. But I do make the vow. By the end of this year, I'm going to release the next podcast. I will get to at least God Emperor Dune and I believe all three of them. Not the rest of the books, but at least one more. <laughs> no, well, God Emperor Dune is maybe the most interesting one of them all. I definitely have a lot of thoughts about it. I read it. I've been rereading the novels just to prepare for this review. I'm anxious for it. I want to hit all three novels. It will depend on my time, but I do promise you by January 1st, you're going to have God Emperor Dune on Books and Nachos. And hopefully, certainly by the time we get a Dune TV series, and probably by March, I'll have all six novels covered. Oh my God, Books and Nachos will awaken? That's the biggest shock yet. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would like to do that. If nothing else, for God Emperor, for Heretics of Dune, and Chapter House Dune. Yeah, I really want to finish that mission, and this has inspired me to do so. But in the meantime, we got to go back to Marvel. We got, uh, well... Make good on what we promised this summer that we just didn't quite deliver. Loki. Because listeners demanded it, because we listen to our listeners as much as they listen to us, because you've said this is what you want, we're going to have two weeks of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Loki next week, and then Eternals the week after, one of which I'm excited to talk about. <laughs> I know which one. <laughs> Yeah, I think both have their appeal. Again, you've been pretty vocal in your hesitancy of the Eternals not giving you the vibes of previous Marvel successes. I think it's going to be its own thing. I think we're going to be going into strange new territory. Not unlike Dune, it will feel like a big Hollywood epic, but have its own moves. And maybe that'll be good, maybe it won't. But I'm curious about both. I've already seen Loki because I thought we were reviewing it this summer. And I can't wait to talk about it next week and Eternals afterwards. In the meantime, if you like this director's style, I think you can see first evidence of what he would do in the sci-fi genre in Arrival. And we are covering that by patron request this Friday for October patrons, the 2016 sci-fi Oscar-nominated film with Hawkeye and Lois Lane, Arrival. See, I'm not the only one who does it. <laughs> 
every reference is just going to comic books now. That is the world we live in. It's easier for our audience. I'll be honest. Like, I feel like Amy Adams maybe not have the same cachet as Lois Lane. That is for our patrons of $10 or more. Remember, we are over on Patreon now, and you can donate $10 a month there and get access to all of our Patreon-exclusive podcasts. We are still over on Podbean as well, so if you've signed up over there, or if you love that Podbean app, you can still sign up at Podbean. And the patron shows, not the donor shows or anything else, but the patron shows are available also through Spotify or Apple if you want to pledge through those channels. There's just been a lot of activity in where bonus podcasts can be delivered. So you can go to Spotify or Apple or Patreon or Podbean. Now, whichever one you pick, you're in that channel. You're locked in. You can't pledge at Patreon and then listen on Apple. But we appreciate your support wherever it is because, again, remember, we put out over 50 free shows a year. And this year, we're on track to put out something like 105 in-depth movie review podcasts. And we need your support to keep that going and to keep the podcasts flowing. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Listeners, thank you for your support. And we will be back next week with Loki because the podcast must flow. the sea but a person needs new experiences they jar something deep inside allowing him to grow without change something sleeps inside us and seldom awakens The sleeper must awaken. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Dune Movie Retrospective Series, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Will we ever have peace, Wadeep? We'll have victory. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Stewart's reviews and analysis of Frank Herbert's original Dune novels. I thought of many pleasures with you. Come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our reviews of other films such as Blade Runner, Ocean's Eleven, The Shining, the James Bond films, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. This place is changing me. It's the spice. It's in the air we breathe and the food we eat. I can't escape it. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. Whatever the need, we have the breed. You can also compare notes with us on Letterboxd. Go to letterboxd.com forward slash now playing to see what our hosts are watching when we're not recording podcasts. 
and follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. I'm Paul. Men are waiting. Me? Right now? It's time you participated. The time of plots and revenge is coming to an end. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Health and long life are the gifts of the spice. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I've seen how they died. <laughs> I'm dead to everyone unless I try to become what I may be. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Remember, one thing to gain control of your perceptions, quite another to gain control of your desires. And if I succeed? You'll find reality to be quite a bit different than you thought. Now Playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. He is a natural leader like his father. Now playing is edited by Santiago and Arnie. What's in the box? Pain. The pain! No! Enough! No woman, child, ever withstood that much. Now playing credit narration by Brock. The voice from the outer world ringing the holy war she had. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. The first step in avoiding a trap is knowing of its existence. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Some thoughts have a certain sound. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2021, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Be sure he recalls his flimsy denials when he's face to face with death's sweet smile. The saga of Dune is far from over. With Jason Momoa and Javier Bardem. Villeneuve? You know what? I've gotten it completely wrong when I watched the featurettes that were on HBO Max. It's like Denis Villeneuve or something like that. I was like, oh, I've never said it like that. Like, Arrival is just going to be... Yeah. <laughs> I always said Villeneuve. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. <laughs> and it's not. It's like Villeneuve. It's like Villeneuve or something like that. It's We're really wrong. Like, we're not even close. So, like, there's a missing syllable? It's just, like, Villeneuve? Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. Something like that. I was like, okay. And I couldn't even, like, go back and play it. And you're like, I still can't get it. All right, whatever. Just Americanize it. Well, I can't at the moment. I'm sure you hear that. I heard something. Where am I? No, that was a dog. Oh, okay. It was Remy. (laughs) Oh, no, I didn't. It sounded like dishes moving. Yeah, I thought I heard someone.
He was Oscar nominated for Call Me By Your Name for good reason, too. He was actually exceptional, better than the other guy, the one that eats toes. I can't forget it. What's his name? <laughs> Ari, uh, oh, or... Army Hammer. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, he was better than Army Hammer. <laughs> oh, God, that guy. <laughs> I thought you meant somebody in the movie ate toes. No, no. <laughs> no, I mean, but who's never told someone they love that they would like to feast on their flesh? Like, I don't know. I don't know what the controversy is there. It's pillow talk. Me either. <laughs> anyway, the point is... Yeah, they got to, you know, I don't want to be left with a Mac and me. Where, like, we'll be back. And then they, I'm still waiting. Where, Where are you, Mac? <laughs> Is that your bar? Is this it as is. good as Mac and me? Well, no, it's just like when I think about sci-fi stories left untold, come on. Do you want a conclusion to Mac and me? Did you want more after watching that? I need that man to come back. I absolutely need him to come back and break dance into McDonald's again. And it needs to star Paul Rudd. You're like, I need the Burger King alien, and then I need the Wendy's alien. Like, yes. a, a different fast food franchise supports each film. I agree. I really want to see that. But regardless, I'm here to talk about Dune. Sure.